Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, 50 years ago, two historic events took place here in Atlanta. Riley Mohammed appeared to be very relaxed in the dressing room. My experience and knowledge of fighters before the fight in the dressing room told me he was completely wound up on the inside. He kept saying, he's going down in round four. He must fall. I'm the champ. I am the champ. They were greeted by seven masked gunmen with sawed-off shotguns who escorted them down to the basement, stripped them out of their clothes, and robbed them of a million dollars in cash and jewelry. Stay tuned for all of that. But first this, how many of y'all woke up to power outages, downed trees, and storm damage after tropical storm Zeta moved through the southeast? Nearly one million households were left without power earlier today, and this prompted officials to declare a rare tropical storm warning for Atlanta also earlier today. It was only the second time the city has issued such a warning. The first was in 2017 due to Hurricane Irma. Now, all of this led the Atlanta Public Schools to cancel virtual classes for this Thursday. Cobb County and Marietta City Schools also canceled in-person classes as a result of the storm. And early voting was also affected. Douglas County canceled all voting today due to power outages. Meanwhile, Cobb County, Fulton and Rockdale County delayed opening their early voting locations. And COVID-19 testing sites in these counties were also delayed. Now you can check to see if your closest COVID-19 testing site is open by contacting your county's health department. Now this comes as coronavirus infections and hospitalizations are rising in Georgia. At the time of this broadcast, 355,025 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. In total, 31,370 have been hospitalized. And of those, 5,888 were considered ICU admissions. And 7,876 deaths have been recorded since March. And this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Coming up in just a moment, 50 years ago, October 26, 1970, two events that took place here in Atlanta. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Today's segments are all about two real live events. The first we'll call He's Back. 50 years ago on the night of October 26th, 1970, Right here in Atlanta, Georgia, the return of a champion. Riley Mohammed appeared to be very relaxed in the dressing room. My experience and knowledge of fighters before the fight in the dressing room told me he was completely wound up on the inside. He kept saying, he's going down in round four. He must fall. I'm the champ. After three and a half years away from the ring, Muhammad Ali was returning to boxing. Ali had refused to enlist in the service after his opposition to the Vietnam War when he had been banned from boxing. Back then, boxing commissions held a power and influence likened to politicians, teamsters, and for some, yes, the mafia. Although Ali's case was buried in the appeals process, he couldn't get a boxing license anywhere. Enter Atlanta. And now a new documentary reveals so much more. It's called Ali's Comeback, The Untold Story. My intention is to box, to win a clean fight. But in war, 
The intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. It's been three and a half years since he's been stripped of his title. He was 27. His title had been stripped from him back in 1967, and he was just looking to fight. Convicted for draft evasion, threatened with imprisonment, Muhammad Ali is banned from fighting in all 50 states. But in Atlanta, Georgia, in October of 1970, that all changed. But also, I want to get some context about this moment in time right here in Atlanta. So joining me now are two people who have been on the show before, Edwin Moses, Olympic legend and boxing historian and commentator, Ron Brashear. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Rose. Pleasure. Let's begin, and I know that with this next question, you could take a half hour, an hour, but put into context for our listeners what Muhammad Ali meant at this time even though he had been out of boxing for three and a half years in 1970. Edwin Moses, I'll start with you. Well, I've I've had quite a few experiences with Muhammad Ali. Just to set the scene back then, if you wanted to watch a boxing meet on TV, you had to go to the theater. Uh, I was in Dayton, Ohio. The theater was pay-per-view. That was the only only place you could see it. It was scratchy. And uh, as you mentioned, previously there were a lot of mobsters and gangsters and people from the street and everything i was a kid i couldn't go so we had to listen to all the fights on the radio but my first experience was at morehouse college in 1974 when he came back to the school he'd actually trained at morehouse in 1970 so i'm a freshman maynard jackson had just been elected mayor of atlanta in the fall if you could imagine stepping into in an anthill and watching all the ants come out. I was sitting in class and the word went out that Muhammad Ali was coming to classes. We thought it was a rumor. And I'm sitting in an English class and I was able to see the mob coming up the street. And you could see Muhammad Ali's head uh, Mm -hmm. right in the center of it. And the guys, all the Morehouse students were just going crazy. And uh, everyone just uh, jumped up and went to the window and then left our books in the classroom. Everyone just went outside and for the next couple of hours. We were just following him around campus. He was sparring with the guys and we went to the small chapel and uh, it was just an exciting, uh, an exciting day. And then later on in my life, uh, a lot of people don't know that in 1978, he started up uh, a track club out in California called the Muhammad Ali Track Club. And mm-hmm. I had just moved to California after graduating from Morehouse. and. He gave me my first job as a commentator for, I believe it was ABC TV. They brought in a brand new track in the Long Beach uh, City Arena. It was uh, done by the Muhammad Ali track, track Club and his business people. And it was just fantastic. And also, Wilt Chamberlain had a track team called Wilt Spikeette. So there were two black track clubs that were based in LA. And so uh, I've had uh, lots of experiences with him all over the world. I've, I've been in places that he's been and always treated me like a champion. And, that kind of respect to a little kid coming out of Morehouse mm-hmm. who happened to win an Olympic medal because he was an Olympian as well. Ron Brashear, every time I have a conversation, whether it's with you or someone else about Muhammad Ali, I always get some other little nugget that I had no idea about. You obviously have followed his career. You're a boxing historian. You're very close with the family. It's just amazing. And even still in 2020, a new documentary is out. There's a new podcast that's coming out about something else that happened. But Ali is connected to all of this. Always connected. He he sure is, Rose. And what's the beauty behind it? To say it's just about boxing would be a disservice. Mm -hmm. I mean, what he has accomplished in his lifetime far exceeds the realm of sports, not just boxing, but sports in general. And to have a human to be amongst our presence that can actually become, go all the way from at one point being viewed in some people's eyes as infamous. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you took such a true, tremendous stance and put dignity before dollars to take on the government and to be more or less outcasted in that kind of way, but yet in his lifetime to bridge that gap from being infamous to beloved before God brought him home is an amazing transformation. And it tells, it says a lot about him. We were looking for, everyone looks for a hero, Mm -hmm. you know, and back when this happened in 1970, like Dr. Edwin Moses said, 
you know, a lot of us were kids. I was a very young kid at the time. So in order, we didn't have money or the ability to go see the fight. So we even had a, a broader imagination because we're hearing it transmitted over the airwaves via radio. So you can only imagine what it must have been like to be there to witness mm -hmm. that excitement. So yeah, Muhammad Ali is just amazing. Well, Ron, let me stay with you because you and I love to have conversations about fighters' styles and strategy. But look, let's be really clear, fellas. He had to win this fight. Everything else aside, and there were some people that thought maybe his opponent, Jerry Corey, might have the edge because he had been away for three and a half years, but he hadn't necessarily been away from working out. And you said it so eloquently there, Rose. Believe me, so much was on the line. Had Muhammad Ali lost this comeback fight, history would have been reshaped in a whole different direction. You're talking about a tremendous amount of pressure. Muhammad Ali is very vocal, very boisterous, you know, and, and full of confidence. But me knowing and growing up and being close to the Ali family, and especially with Rockman, Muhammad Ali did have butterflies coming into that fight because he knew the magnitude of his return to the ring. And Rose in boxing, you'll see where fighters that take time off, usually when you come back, even after a one-year layoff, you're fighting maybe like what's called a tune-up fight. Mm -hmm. Make no mistake about it, Jerry Corey from California, this California heavyweight was 37 and four with a record. He was ranked in the top three by the WBA when that fight took place. So he didn't come back and fight a shoe-in victory. He fought one of the toughest heavyweights that mm -hmm. was in the top 10 ranked at the time. And Ali, though, there was no way he could have whooped King Kong that night mm. because he felt that what was taken from him outside the ring, he gets an opportunity to reset the stage. And boy, that arena, when them lights come on, <laughs> there is none, no one better than Muhammad Ali. Boy, he danced under them lights and gets it. And I want to get back to you in a moment about his style. You mentioned dancing, dancing on the balls of his feet. But Edwin Moses, if you took three and a half years away in the prime of your career as a hurdler, could you have come back and been ready to face one of the top three hurdlers in the world? I took the year of 1982 off because I had uh, pneumonia a couple of times. I just couldn't couldn't get well, mm -hmm. and I canceled uh, my season in 82. And then in 1985, I had a knee injury. Uh, that took me out for the whole year. I couldn't compete at all. And uh, in track and field, every year is like a comeback because you never really know whether or not you're ever going to get to that level because of injury, age, your body just may not react well. And you're, you're working, if you're not at 99.5% in track and field, you're off at the world-class level. So just getting back to full strength after being on top when the professionalism and level of performance is so high, just the one year layoff was monstrous for me. So I can't imagine three yeah. years. That's a lifetime. That's a lifetime in the uh, life of an athlete. Ron Brashear, what do we know about Jerry Quarry? And you mentioned a little bit a while ago, but in, and also heavyweights now, let's be clear too. Heavyweights, you know, depending on who you ask, a little bit different back in the day as opposed to now. But what do we know about Jerry Quarry and his boxing style? Was he a bruiser? Was he not much of a technician in the ring? Right. Just a hard-nosed fighter, a, a come-forward fighter, and just a toughness, not only mental, but physical toughness. Jerry Corey fought the who's who of the heavyweight division. And, man, this guy can straight fight. And to your point, back in those days, the heavyweights now, when you start talking about the day's crops, these guys are 6'7", 250, mm -hmm. 245. Jerry Corey was like 195. Ali was like 205 in the prime, sometimes 210, but athletic. And, and that's, that's what's most important. Jerry Corey was a solid athlete and a rugged, tough fighter. I mean, for Muhammad Ali to stop Jerry Corey, I mean, that says a lot because Jerry Corey wasn't easily to be stopped. Mm -hmm. He's going to bring it and you're going to have to, and he's not going to stop himself. In that particular fight, he got stopped on cuts. But, man, Ali's jab was razor and just cut him up. I mean, it was a tremendous performance. And if folks haven't seen the, the video footage, it's out there. In fact, the entire fight, which I believe went to four rounds. But 
Jerry Corey suffers an eye injury that still, it was bad, and he wanted to continue. And, Ron, you know that when your corner says no, and corners don't like to do that, but when your corner says no, you can't continue, I think blood was in his eyes, coming out of his eyes, and the cut can't box continue like that. Gentlemen, when we talk about Atlanta being this place for Ali making this comeback, how significant was that? Dr. Moses? Well, I didn't even know the entire story until I saw the the premiere here in Atlanta, the whole film, and Mm -hmm. round by round by round, it was dramatic the way it was done. Just the atmosphere at the time, the racial atmosphere, the fact that Ali had they banned him from sport and vilified him and just everything that was going on here in town from uh, Leroy Jones. It was a LA moment. It was an, a who's who of all the African-Americans uh, in the country. And uh, I didn't know about that part of the story. That was something that I didn't know. So when people see the film, it's a very interesting take on that segment, those months and days. It's intense. And it's funny as well. So Atlanta was uh, the city to have it in at at that time because of the politics and the dynamics. Well, it was the perfect blend of, as we've been hearing, uh, elite black Hollywood was here and some non-elite black. Barbara Streisand was here, Harry Belafonte, Coretta Scott King was there, Bill Cosby, Sammy Davis. A young Jesse Jackson is leading the group as Ali is making his way from the dressing room to the ring, uh, probably the place to have this. Absolutely. Now, and just know during that time, and a lot of things happen in Atlanta's favor too. And I'm glad history turned out that way because while he was suspended away, there was a lot of work taking place trying to get them to sanction that fight elsewhere. But these boxing commissions had put their foot down that they weren't going to allow him to fight in the United States. And they were trying hard to stage his comeback originally in New York City. And they were trying to put pressure on the New York Athletic Commission to overturn their position and at least let this man fight. But I give credit to the lawyers that were involved, Chauncey Estridge and Jonathan Shapiro, working with the NAACP Legal Defense. They were fighting hard. And and I think Shapiro might have been with the SCLC or his other way around. Mm-hmm. Chauncey, one of them was with SCLC and the other one with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And because there was no, quote, boxing commission in Atlanta, you know, that was great that they were able to work with Leroy Johnson and get that set up in place to take place here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And not everybody was happy, Rose. There was opposition from from the Ku Klux Klan, there was threats, there was Mm -hmm. bomb threats, there was heightened awareness. But one thing that stood tall about Muhammad Ali, because they were warning him, man, with all this going on, champ, why don't you put on a bulletproof vest or something? We'll feel a little more secure. And Muhammad Ali, steadfast in his belief, man, Allah is my protector. I stand with Allah. And man, he refused to put on bulletproof vest or anything. Mm. And that was the toughest piece to get through that mentally to prepare to come in the ring and handle his business. And man, he did it in big time stuff. I want to talk about influence as we begin to wrap up. And I know that Ali has been an influence for so many professional athletes. And when they reach that intersection of social or civil justice and being an athlete and what they can do and the power behind their influence, Uh, Edwin Moses, I'll start with you. You mentioned Ali being an influence for you. What has his influence been on you? Well, he made uh, the ultimate sacrifice for an athlete. You know, I was 13 years old in the 1968 Olympics, so my heroes were John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Beeman, and uh, Muhammad was in the middle of his career back then in the late 60s and early 70s fights were on on radio and everybody was listening and all the little boys wanted to i mean the number of busted lips and black eyes in the, in the community <laughs> from little boys boxing must have been outstanding but i was one of those and we just grew up knowing that this man uh, stood against the united states government during the vietnam war and back then they used to call them race man he was a race man my dad my dad was one too in terms of education but Everyone was just so proud. And those were the people that we were told to look up to in terms of the kind of sacrifice that we may have to make 
at some level going forward. So it's uh, just outstanding. He's the epitome of sacrifice and athleticism. And Ron Brashear, you continue to work closely with, with Muhammad Ali's family. First of all, his influence, and, and what do you all got coming up next? Uh, the influence is it's hard to really put to words, especially being a young child, especially born into the skin that we're in. It was the first time I ever saw someone reverse how I looked at myself, because therefore, wow, imagine being a six-year-old, seven-year-old kid, and you turn on the TV during the civil rights and dogs are being sick on people that look like us and hoses. You start to question, why me? What is it about that I'm born into this? And then all of a sudden you turn on the television, and here's this brash, young, good-looking guy to come on and say, I'm pretty as a girl. I'm greatest. I'm the greatest in the world. You talk about self-esteem. People can will never understand the magnitude how a human can uplift an entire race. Mm. And you know, and to bring it back into perspective of what happened here in Atlanta, another hero that was involved at that time is Jim Brown. Mm -hmm. And Jim Brown, when he took, I, I, I give big props to Jim Brown. He brought the top black athletes when the, everybody was ready to oust Muhammad Ali, what are you doing? What do you mean you're not going to fight for the military? And Jim Brown said, before we condemn him, let's invite him to Cleveland. And it's historically now known as the Cleveland 1967 Summit before Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We talking Lou Alcindor, Bill Russell, and a host of black athletes. And they went to hear him out. And then after letting him take his stands of what he believed, they came back to the podium and said, we stand with him. And man, that sent a message to the Supreme Court and everyone viewing that, man, there are a lot of people that sees this a different way before we can just tell this man he can't have his future. Mm. And I have the good fortune to be the promoter, business manager, and advisor to his only sibling, Rahman Ali. Mm -hmm. Little known history fact for the listeners today. Rahman Ali fought on the undercard that famous night in October 26, 1970. He fought a guy by the name of Hurricane Grant. And isn't it ironic? Mm -hmm. Both Ali fighters stopped their fighters at the third round. At the end of the third round, Corey couldn't come back out. Rockman on the undercard stopped Hurricane Grant from the Bahamas in the third round. We are blessed right now that Rockman tells his story in his new book called My Brother Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. the definitive biography. And wouldn't it be known... <laughs> NFL legend Jim Brown wrote the foreword. And what I hope people take away from Rahman's book, numerous books have been written on Muhammad Ali, but here's what's different. Those great authors, Thomas Hauser, Norman Mailer, I got much respect for them, even Jonathan Egg, mm -hmm. but they knew of Muhammad Ali or got to know Muhammad Ali while they were working on the project. This biography comes to the readers through the lens of the man that knew him longer than anyone mm -hmm. and better than anyone and gracefully lived in his shadows for over seven decades without bitterness. And Edwin Moses, you are, I just want to shift for a moment before we finally say goodbye. You're working with Morehouse, trying to get that old track back up in better shape, huh? Yeah, we're trying to get it refurbished. You know, they put it in during the 96 Olympics and the surface has uh, pretty much gone away. Mm -hmm. So I've, we're ready to start moving dirt. So we're uh, going to hit the streets and look for partners to help us to complete that facility. We think it's a perfect time and uh, we're going to do it in the short term. And it's going to be wonderful. I asked you this question last time you were on the program about still going over hurdles. Uh, if you had to, could boxing techniques have helped a, a hurdler of yourself? You know, I grew up, I was a tiny kid. I was smaller, went to school one year earlier. I wore glasses, had braces. So I had to fight when I was young. I got chased a lot. I never got beat up, but I, I did quite a bit of fighting. In fact, my dad bought us three brothers. We had two sets of boxing gloves and we used to get in the kitchen, turn the kitchen timer on, on, on one minute and just go uh, roundabout, you know, like all day long. Were you on boxing. your toes? A great hurdler, a great boxer. <laughs> your footwork is so important, Edwin. No, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hit and run specialist. <laughs> oh, this is great talking about the the greatest Muhammad Ali, Edwin Moses. 
Ron Brashear, thank you all so much for taking our listeners back to 1970 and that historic night. I really appreciate y'all being a part of today's program. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. Thank you very much, Rose. So that is part one of the big night in Atlanta on October 26, 1970. When we come back, part two, it's called The Heist. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. King. The song is Chains and Things, and it actually was on the charts in 1970. Closer Look continues now as we continue to look back on the night of October 26, 1970, Atlanta, Georgia. Muhammad Ali's return to boxing after three and a half years out of the ring. And while Muhammad Ali won the boxing match against Jerry Corey, miles away from the old city auditorium, another historic event was unfolding. I remember so clearly the first time I told this story. It was to my good friend Johnny at a bar in Atlanta during the summer of 2003. After a few bourbon on the rocks, the details were just flowing out of me. Muhammad Ali was back to boxing in the fall of 1970 after a three-year suspension for refusing to enter the military draft. There were celebrities, politicians, journalists, and hustlers from all over the country that converged into Atlanta to celebrate his return. I told him about a hustler named Gordon Williams, a.k.a. Chicken Man, who was throwing the biggest party of his life. But when his guests walked inside, they were greeted by seven masked gunmen with sawed-off shotguns who escorted them down to the basement, stripped them out of their clothes, and robbed them of a million dollars in cash and jewelry. When I was done, Johnny looked at me with a shocked expression on his face. Slowly, he turned to the stranger sitting at the bar on his left and said, You've got to hear this story. Then he looked back at me and demanded, Tell it again, Jeff. Okay, Johnny, here it is. Why did the press keep following this story? Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. It's not one, number two. Well, that's all we're going to give you for now, but there's more. And the old United Press International story read like this on October 28, 1970. Quote, the owners of a house used by a gang of thieves in the holdup of about 100 boxing fans Monday night denied today that they were involved in the robbery. Gordon, Chicken Man Williams, who had been sought by the police, and Barbara Smith showed up at police headquarters with their lawyer and said that they, too, had been robbed. Close quote. There is so much more to this. So, like pretty much anything else, the story behind the story is now in a podcast it's called Fight Night and the Million Dollar Heist, narrated by director and writer Jeff Keating, and also features historian and associate professor for African American Studies at Georgia State University and author, you've heard him so many times on this show program, Maurice Hobson. And both join me now. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Rose. All right, here we go. We all know that half-century markers are always fascinating. And here in Georgia... 1970. I'm just going to give you a few things that were happening. That that included this little Atlanta UHF Channel 17, which would become Turner Communications Group under Ted Turner. We all know how that turned out. 
Jimmy Carter announced his candidacy for the governor of Georgia. Hank Aaron gets his 3,000 hit. Now, there was another huge sporting event that's going to take place October 26th. So, Professor Hobson, I'm going to begin with you. How huge was this for Atlanta that Muhammad Ali was going to make his comeback, his return to the ring right here in Atlanta, Georgia? It was absolutely huge on several levels. I mean, the first thing about it is Atlanta is, is hometown to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a civil, rights, civil and human rights champion around the world. He had been assassinated two years earlier. Uh, things had reached a fever's pitch, but Atlanta had been able to present itself in a unique kind of way in terms of race relations. And with Muhammad Ali taking a stance in terms of, you know, being a conscientious objector and then, you know, using, you know, his status as a minister to, to not go to, to the military uh, and then risking it all to go to prison was major. But for him to get it in Atlanta, it signaled a moment where we have very powerful black political uh, officials such as State Senator Leroy Johnson, who's able to wield his power over Lester Maddox, who was a staunch segregationist, to get Ali, who may at that time been one of the most hated men in the, in the United States, to be, have the opportunity to showcase who he was. And for Atlanta, particularly Atlanta's black masses and everything that Ali stood for, it, 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 it was wonderful. Last thing is that this would cement a relationship that, Atlanta, that Muhammad Ali would have with Atlanta for the rest of his life. You painted a picture of what Atlanta was like, but for the Atlanta black community here and coming out of the civil rights movement and obviously all the, the turmoil that happened in the late 60s, what was life like in Atlanta for the average black citizen here? Well, you know, in 1968, nationally, there was the Kerner Report that mm -hmm. talked about the two Americas, one black, one white, going in opposite directions. And the Atlanta Journal uh, and Constitution at the time did a feature from May 5th to May 23rd, 1968, that talked about the two Atlantas. And so, I mean, and we know that there are more than two Atlantas, but with this being said, there was a whole black Atlanta that the rest of Atlanta, white Atlanta was not familiar with. And so the fact that Ali is fighting at the old city auditorium, which is next to Buttermilk Bottom in, in the old fourth ward, and the mm -hmm. fact that he's training at Morehouse College, that brings together several different Atlantas, black Atlantas right there. And then the fact that Ali had a pageantry and symbolism about him in terms of being a black man who was unafraid to speak his mind. He presented a new idea of what it meant to be black and Southern. And so he, he basically stood as a symbol for all kinds of communities uh, here. Jeff, on this night, celebrities, socialites, I like how you use the word hustlers, folks from all sides of wherever. This was the hottest ticket in time. It only had 5,000 seats, but... If you were somebody, you had a ticket to that fight. Because there was a national and international spotlight on the city. You know, as Mo kind of pointed out, a few years before that, in the late 60s, you finally get the Atlanta Hawks. You know, we get a basketball team. You get the Falcons, if I'm not mistaken. I guess the Braves have been here for a while, but that's starting to close. So sports-wise, you had some building, but finally in 19 Atlanta, you get this international events where you got this huge spotlight on the city and whenever you get a spotlight on that you get all different types of people and you get a lot of different types of uh money pouring in as well so it was definitely a, a huge pouring in of all these different types of people professor hobson when did you first hear of the heist that happened on the night that ali was making his comeback here in atlanta so in the early 1990s, of course, hip hop is, is starting to, to turn Southern, but it's when I was truly introduced to black exploitation films. Uh, so I mean, Petey Weestraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law, you know, Dolomite, mm -hmm. The Mac. And a countercurrent to that was uh, Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier's kind of comedy where they didn't curse and whatever, whatnot. But I can't remember if it was Uptown Saturday Night or Let's Do It. I think it was Uptown Saturday Night. Mm -hmm. And you have Bootney Fonsworth and this whole heist that takes place between these hustlers and whatever, whatnot. So that's the first time that I'd ever seen it on screen. But then as a researcher on Atlanta while in graduate school, I'm like, whoa, this really happened. And so it was interesting for me to see it play out on the big screen. And I'm gonna tell you all something, truth is always stranger than fiction. And if you so. have not seen Uptown Saturday Night or Let's Do It Again, and it's got the who's who of Black Hollywood up in there. Jeff, for you, 
there's a personal connection that is absolutely unbelievable in terms of when you first heard about the heist. I just celebrated my mom and dad's 50th wedding anniversary this weekend. It was a memorable and just wonderful affair. And this all started because of them. They were coming back from Nashville, Tennessee and stopping over in Atlanta on their way to their honeymoon in Italy. And my dad remembers reading the newspaper and this headline about this heist. And then two or three decades later, when his son becomes a screenwriter and is looking to find another story, he shares this headline with me. And as you can imagine, like anybody else, I was just blown away, first of all, that this happened. And second of all, that it had been so long I'd been in Atlanta and had never heard about this heist. I had heard about the fight, mm -hmm. but not about the heist. It was definitely a family affair. My mother, Rose, had actually worked at the Regency Hotel. That's where my dad met her. And so she was there in the months preceding the uh, fight and everybody coming in, staying at the Regency. And so uh, definitely a family affair. And so, Jeff, as you start then, as most storytellers do, you started researching and researching Let's talk about the audio quality that you have in, in this podcast. I don't know if it's real to real, but you have some very clear audio of interviews. Is this real to real? Yes. I mean, it, so thank you for that. I will say I, I feel, I mean, it was a, a little bit of struggle to kind of have that come to life. So just imagine, Rose, back then I've got a micro cassette recorder, <laughs> um, which is, you know, a little small mini version of the cassette recorders. And, you know, I'm putting them in the middle of the table between our interview subjects, specifically J.D., who's the policeman. And at the time, Rose, I was really just focused on getting some information so I could do research for the screenplay. I had no idea that this would translate to a podcast, you know, decades later. I'm so glad that I did. We also were lucky and got some uh, video interviews along the way as well. And so we were able to use the audio from those. And so, again, this is a combination of VHS and microcassette and some of these video interviews that we were able to get. And for the folks listening that have no idea what VHS is, go ahead and Google it. And, and Sorry about that. I'm old. So. <laughs> All right, Professor Hobbs, let me bring you back into the conversation. How did you get involved in this project? Because you also bring some very good insight into setting the scene not just for the heist or the fight, but all the other tentacles tied to this time and place here in Atlanta? Well, the early part of my career, I've spent studying the national and international implications of Atlanta as a Black Mecca. And I, you know, I wrote a book about all of that kind of stuff, uh, The Legend of the Black Mecca. While after I'd written The Legend of the Black Mecca, Ali had passed away in the process. And I've always been an Ali fan. My father was an Ali fan. And I just decided to write a, an article called Ali in Atlanta, a love story in the key of the black new South. And so it provided, you know, the relationship with Muhammad Ali he had four real uh, expressions of his relationship, but I won't get into that. But the thing about it is Jeff reached out to me in an email one day and I was just so overwhelmed by the way in which he approached me about it because, you know, sometimes Folk from the outside can just shoot you an email and they just, you know, like, I want to meet with you tomorrow. And it's like, you know, they don't consider. But he was very, very courteous. And when we talked, he was just kind of like, you know, I really need your help. And, and I just, I, I was, I said, well, I know all of this information. I know the other information. I know about the fight. But I think that he had done an excellent job. He's an excellent storyteller. I'm just grateful that Jeff asked me to be a part of this. Jeff, before we get into one of the main folks that we're going to learn about, which is J.D. Hudson, I want to ask you just how much material content did you have? Is everything going to make it into this podcast series? We had probably 10, 12, maybe 14 hours of archival stuff that I initially had, Rose. Then we also found some other stuff uh, through the University of Georgia's archival department and some other things that you know um, where you can get into the sports side of it. Mm -hmm. So we definitely had to weave through a lot of different material. I think the difficult part, and, and I learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes making this podcast, was being able to set the foundation of the story where you get the archival information. Because 
once you have that, especially because it's so old, you can't go back and get more. I wish I had done a better job, even though you were kind to say we got some good archival audio, but I wish I would have got even more. And there was a lot of questions that I wish that I would have asked. But with what we had, you just set this stuff down foundationally. And then as the narrator and storyteller, then you kind of build and weave and move around that. Uh, just to go back what you were talking about with Dr. Hobson as well, you know, I'm so I'm almost 50 years old. I was just born in 1970. So obviously I don't remember that time period at all, but we're learning about and talking about and being educated about a part of Atlanta and history that I think is very important to the part of the story behind just the heist and the event itself. And I felt it was extremely important to get somebody like Dr. Hobson that could share the knowledge of that history and also some of the topics that we're doing. We're dealing with a lot of racial topics and stuff that Again, somebody like myself didn't live through and doesn't understand that is important as you're understanding these characters. Mm -hmm. So that archival audio, but also the history behind these men and these events was very important. So, Jeff, let's get into a man named J.D. Hudson. Uh, I had a couple of guys who didn't want to work for me who were white. But once they worked for me, they didn't want to leave me. Well, I was uh, I was at the top of the hill. I was, I was hot stuff. I was a police celebrity. I was the envy of my white brothers on the police department. They used to beg to work with me so they could make some cases. Take our listeners through a little bit of who he is and what they'll hear from him in this podcast. J.D. Hudson was a policeman, one of the first black policemen in Atlanta, and ended up being the lead detective on this case, which became this heist after the Muhammad Ali, Jerry Corey fight. Through my research, I was able to track him down because a lot of the articles mentioned his name. And after a couple of weeks of basically begging Rose on the phone, I was able to get an interview with him and again, this guy is, in my opinion, just like the real version of Shaft. And so the differences in our personality, uh, I mean, he was just this gruff, rough, tough cop that allowed me into his house and was willing to share this story. And, and he was known uh, not to trust a lot of people outside of his circle, which I assume would be policemen and family. Um, so I was amazed and pleased that obviously he was willing to share this story with me. And, and I think he got a kick out of me being so naive, Rose, and not understanding this world that I was talking about and being able to educate me. <laughs> he teased me a lot about that. Professor Hobson, you talk a great deal about the pride and respect black officers had and were held in high regard in Atlanta's black neighborhoods in this time, 1970. Of course. And, you know, in 1948 is when Atlanta actually enacts its first police officers who were not allowed to dress at uh, the police headquarters. They would dress at the uh, Butler Street YMCA. Oftentimes they were seen as symbolic because that was one of the issues. I mean, police brutality was an issue uh, in 1970, and it would later be on Maynard Jackson's agenda in 1973 when he's elected as mayor. But, you know, um, these black police officers also, you know, understood the community and a black community, particularly in the American South coming out of Jim Crow, uh, the black elite and the black working class and poor all live in the same neighborhood. They worship in the same spot. They go to the same barbecue spots. They bury their dead in the same. So it's one of those kind of things where they always interact. And so with this, I mean, black police officers were important, but then also black police officers were complicated because sometimes they had to arrest the students uh, and the students sit in because it was a policy issue whereas they supported what the students were doing personally. So you can understand there's a complicated nature here. I think Jeff does an excellent job. When you hear the interaction between Jeff and Hudson, it's an interesting exchange because he does tease Jeff, being someone who is of the black community. I do know and understand that he admired the tenacity of Jeff continuing to show up and continue to ask these questions to get an understanding. And we'll learn why J.D. Hudson was so important. But, Jeff, I want to move on to someone else that folks are going to hear about, which is Gordon Chicken Man Williams. Who was he? So Gordon Chicken Man Williams was a hustler that was in the Atlanta community as well. 
he was known as a lottery man. And so quickly the lottery is kind of like our daily quick picks and stuff where you can go down to the gas station, your local marts and pick your numbers and be able to, you know, win your potential millions of dollars. But back in the day, uh, the lottery of the bug was something that was a big source of, of revenue for these hustlers. And he was just the guy that was uh, figuring out any way he could to make a buck and support his family and a lot of different ventures. I, I found out he was a guy that was um, kind of under the radar, you know, not uh, necessarily flashy, um, savvy businessman. And so again, I had to learn a lot from articles and people telling me about him and uh, interviews with his son, which you'll find out um, gathering all of this information. So let's give, if we can, I guess the police report telling of what happened the night of the Ali fight, the condensed version in a sense, you know, we don't want to give too much away, but what happened here, Jeff? So as the fight is ending, the party goers are slowly heading over to Chicken Man's house. And as they walk in the door, they think they're going to be greeted by women and wine, but they're ultimately met by seven masked men and with sawed off shotguns that force them down to the basement and rob them of a million dollars in cash and jewelry. And the police, I think, show up in the wee hours of the night and are trying to get information from all of these hustlers and gangsters that are at this party. I think the key for everybody to understand, Rose, is that there was a lot of criminals at this party, and so nobody wanted to talk to the police. Uh, you know, you don't want to deal with the IRS. You don't want to deal with the police. So basically, everybody kind of takes their hits and then leaves town. And then ultimately, over the next six months, this case unravels, and there's dead bodies that wind up from Atlanta to New York. And we'll leave it at that. Let's talk about this house where the robbery took place. It's still around. I mean, you stood in the very room where it all went down, right? I did, which was amazing to go back and walk in the front door and walk on the steps and in the basement where all this took place. There's a gentleman that owns the house now that's a, still a family member connected to Chicken Man and his family. So it was great to actually educate him and have him learn about parts of the story that he knew nothing about, except only maybe in, uh, you know, myth. Hmm. So I, I found that to be fascinating to actually be on the property, Rose. So listeners, that's it. We're not going to give away anything else. But Professor Hobson, this podcast, it's so much more than the Ali fight and the heist. You know, we've been talking about how it also transports the listener to 50 years ago to what Atlanta was like. What's been your takeaway so far? Not only with what you add to it, but combined with Jeff's narration and all the archive interviews and all that. Did you feel like you were back in 1970 a little bit? I felt like I was back in 1970, and you know. Uh, Did you have a fur coat? <laughs> listen, a chinchilla, a, a chinchilla. You know, I had a long Lincoln LTD. Uh, you know, some some platforms. It is one of those things to where, um, personally for me, the culture of the late 60s and the 70s is one that is so cool, and I know. It, it, it particularly comes out of like black power and black art, and yep. and kind of thumbing the nose at the establishment, and you know, kind of you know just expressive. And then, you know, to hear, you know, J.B. Hudson and he's like, what, what you talking about? It, it, it's just like, man, this is like made for TV. But it also kind of shows how you have a main event and then you have these tentacles. You know, history oftentimes is you'll focus on an event and what it means. But like people are agents of history just by living their everyday lives. And that becomes more important. It's a social history from the bottom up. And so and lastly, the cool thing about this piece is the way in which Jeff a kid from Decatur is able to kind of roll into Atlanta and, and try to build this relationship. It really does speak to something that I've been critical of is that, you know, style of biracial negotiation in Atlanta to where it shows how it works. Jeffrey Keaton did his due diligence. He did his homework for this. And I think that that's the beauty of this because podcasts can be fun and they're listened to, but it, he did his homework and I can always respect the method. Jeff, where does this project rank with your body of work and what you've done in your career? This is definitely my main project, Rose. After, you know, 20 years, I'm so pleased that we finally get to share this story with the world. Uh, but just to touch on something that you and, and Maurice were talking about, 
just imagine, you know, we all live in our bubbles, you know, wherever we are, especially growing up. And, and there's places and things bigger than life. You know, for me, oh, New York City or Los Angeles, or maybe you get to go to Italy. But there was places 10 minutes away from where I was living that I knew nothing about, these worlds, these hustlers, the cops. Um, and, and even 20, 30, 40 years in, I'm still getting a great history lesson and, and, edu and education about that world. So I think it's a reminder to all of us to sometimes look right in our own hometown and, and right where we're living and be able to learn and, and grow locally, you know, before we start to expanding to the rest of the world. So I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Hobson um, share some of the history and, and educate me. And I, what I'm hopeful, Rose, is that the listeners, just like me, I, I was an observer in all this. And so I hope that they get to observe and learn about this incredible story. The podcast is called Fight Night and the Million Dollar Heist. It's narrated by director and writer Jeff Keating, and it features historian and associate professor for African-American studies at Georgia State University and author Maurice Hobson. Thank you so much for taking the time. Compelling storytelling here and the soundtrack. 1970. Come on. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sister Rose. And, and it's, it's always a pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.